Our text today is um, from Galatians chapter 3, and you may want to look at that in your bulletin, Galatians chapter 3, and uh, I'll read that this time. You be silent, but be looking at it and thinking about it as I read it. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9 and 21 to 29. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you Do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God <clears throat> through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And to the reading of the word of God, let's all say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Cornerstone is a church. Not a social club. Not a group of friends, though it's that too. It's a church. This first Sunday of 2014, therefore, I felt uh, led by the Holy Spirit to preach about the church. Now, what is the church? The church is the people of God, washed in Jesus Christ's blood, animated by the power of the resurrection, led by the Spirit of God, brought together locally under the oversight of local shepherds, pastors, elders, and the service of deacons. The church is God's work, not man's work. It's God's work. The church is a vital part of the Lord's kingdom. It's a big part of what God's doing to redeem the world in Jesus Christ. He doesn't do it without the church. But actually today, in preaching about the church, I'm really preaching about something else, which is the covenant. Because you can't really understand the church unless you understand God's covenant dealings in the Bible. Now, there are all sorts of covenants in the Bible. 
people in the ancient world made uh, many more covenants. And they made a lot more of the idea of covenants than we do today. That's why we need to understand what a covenant is. Now, a covenant in the Bible is a sacred agreement between two parties. It's bound by a sacred oath. It contains mutual obligations and benefits. It's handed down from generation to generation. Just remember that a covenant is a very sacred agreement. Now, as we read the Bible, the two main covenants are the New Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. By the way, those two are intertwined in the Bible. Now, today, I want to preach briefly about the Abrahamic Covenant that we read about in Galatians. And in so doing, in so doing, perhaps teach you a little something important about the church. A little history quickly first. Abraham, he was called Abram at the time, if you've read the book of Genesis, was a pagan. He was a pagan. Good, old-fashioned pagan. Just like some of these pagans, you know, down in Santa Cruz, walking downtown. Just a good old-fashioned, that that was Abraham, old-fashioned pagan. He lived in a city, an ancient city called Ur, which is in modern-day Iraq. And of all the people in the world, God chose or elected this pagan to be his covenant partner. Of all the people, as if God went downtown Santa Cruz and some sloppy-looking, smelly pagan, God says, you're the one I'm going to covenant with. Why did God choose Abram rather than anybody else? Not because Abram was better, not because he was wiser, not because he was more righteous, not because he was more faithful, because he wasn't. He wasn't. God elected Abram to participate in his covenant because of God's glorious, unfettered grace. Don't you love that? Grace. Grace. God's goodness, unmerited. In the same way, God told the Jews, this seed that we'll talk about in a second, he chose them because of his grace, nothing more or nothing less. God says to him, you think I chose you because you were better or higher, more noble? He says in Deuteronomy, than all the nations of the earth, God's basically saying, are you crazy? You are the littlest, the tiniest, the most stupid and backward people. And yet I chose you. And know this, God's election is always according to grace and it's not according to works. Always according to God's grace. That's important for the church of Jesus Christ to know. You want to know what makes us different from people out there? God's grace. The grace of God. God chose us, in fact, according to Romans 9, 11, before birth to prove that the only thing that makes us different from everyone else is his grace. This makes sure that man can't boast. There's no room for boasting. God alone gets the glory. So God chooses this pagan, Abram, and God promises him that if he will leave his father's house, if he'll leave his father's house, if he'll follow this one true Jehovah God, God would give him a multitude of children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, heirs, we would say, who would live in a glorious land all their own. Now, we call this people later Israel or the Jews, right? Now, more important, more important than that, God promised that God would be a God to this man and to his children and grandchildren and further descendants. He 
He, the true God, would be their loving and protective God. They would be his choice people above all the peoples of the earth. He would hold them up. I love what he says in Exodus. He says, and I'll carry you, I'll hold you and bear you up on eagle's wings, he says. You're my prized possession. He says later on, he says, you're my precious jewels. It's easy to remember the three things, the covenant promises that God promised to Abram. Ready? They're not hard. You'll get a God, me, he said, God said, a seed and a land. God, seed, and land. Now, almost the entire rest of the Old Testament, if you've read the Old Testament, and I hope you have, is an account of God's dealings with this covenant people, right? He miraculously gave Abram a son when he and his wife were well beyond their childbearing years to inspire faith and to show that Abram must walk constantly, constantly, constantly by faith. He later brought them into a land called Canaan. And then Abram's great, 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 great grandchildren ended up as slaves in Egypt so that God can show this large multitude now his great loving might on their behalf so they could look back and say, we were slaves in Egypt and look what our great God did. That's why God led them down into Egypt. Well, despite their sin and their apostasy, he led them into their own land, the land of Canaan, roughly the same area that the nation of Israel is in today. He gave them his loving law, but they just kept departing from him. They kept departing from his law. And so he chastised them. He brought hardships on them so they would repent. And then they would turn to him, and then he'd deliver them. And finally, 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 in the last part of Kings and Chronicles, they kept persisting in sin, so he sold them into exile, and they were taken, they were taken away to Assyria and to Babylon. Eventually, in the end of the Old Testament, he started bringing his people back into their land, little by little. This, this Old Testament story is one big story of God's relentless, persevering, sacrificial love for his covenant people. Isn't that true? If you've read the Old Testament, don't you know that? It's just one big story of God's pursuing these really ratty, sinful people that he loved. That's basically what the Old Testament, for the most part, is about. They kept abandoning God, but he refused to abandon them. He kept pursuing them. Now, throughout all of this, this, there's this little tale that's woven. As you've read the Old Testament, God kept making a promise. He would send a special servant. He would send an anointed one, a Messiah, a Jewish Savior, who would stop this cycle. This Messiah, he said, would save his people finally and forever. He'd bring salvation and righteousness and deliverance and peace to God's people, but not only to God's people, to the entire world, all the nations of the earth. We know, of course, from reading the Bible, that this Jewish Messiah was none other than Jesus Christ. But, and this is where I get back to Galatians, and this is what's so amazing. Now, you all know the Bible's an amazing book, right? You heard it here first, right? This is a secret. The Bible's an amazing book. You really have to read the Bible to see how totally amazing it is. You can't just pick out a verse here and there. See, on Sundays, we have to just pick certain verses and preach them. But you actually have to go through the Bible and read it when you see this massive, amazing storyline of the Word of God. When we get to Galatians, we learn something even more striking. We learn that this same Messiah is the true seed of Abraham that God promised that pagan in Ur so many generations before. So when Jehovah made these promises to Abram, 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before about a seed. The seed he really was making the promise to was whom? Jesus Christ. That's just so amazing. Now, before that, I must say quickly, though, what was the problem? You see here when we read here, oh, foolish, you see, the reading began, oh, foolish Galatians. Did that get your attention? Who's foolish? What's, Paul, what are you talking about? Foolish. Who's foolish? Well, why did he even write this? What was the problem? Well, there were false teachers in the churches of Galatia at the time <coughs> that were teaching that you had to act like an ethnic Jew in order to be right with God. You had to keep the Jewish law, the Mosaic law, the Old Covenant, in order to be in covenant with God. Paul proved from the Old Testament, from the Old Testament, not the New Testament, that that isn't so. First, he showed, he, Paul shows that the law came along a long, long time after God made his covenant with Abram. He says that in verse 17, which is totally amazing. God gave his law to his people. It's a great law, but the law comes after the covenant. Did you get that? The law always comes after the covenant. It's for the covenant people of God, but the covenant always comes first. You get in covenant with God first, and then you live according to his law. Then, Paul said that God got into covenant with Abram while Abram was still a Gentile. And you know why? Precisely so this covenant would include all the nations of the earth. I just love that. He says that in Galatians 3, 7, and 8. If, if you read carefully when I read it earlier, that's what he's saying. Paul's saying that God made a covenant with a Gentile, not a Jew, so that all of the nations, not just Jews, could be in covenant with God. That's so precious. But then Paul says something even more amazing. The true seed of Abraham is none other than Jesus Christ. All along, when God was making promises to Abraham, he was making promises to and about his own son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think about this, because the next words I'm going to say are really weighty, okay? God the Father would be a God to his son, Jesus Christ. God the Father would give his son a multitudinous seed. And God would give his son a huge land to inherit. You say, well, wait a minute. That's, wait a minute, Andrew. Those sound like the promises that, that God gave to Abram. Exactly. That's the point. Jesus is the true seed of Abraham. And he is the inheritor. Jesus is the inheritor of all of these promises. This shows what was really false about this teaching in Galatia. You get into covenant with God, not by being an ethnic Jew. Not by keeping the law, but by coming one with the seed of Abraham. And who is the seed of Abraham? That's how you get into covenant with God. By faith alone in Jesus Christ. And when you become one with Jesus Christ, you get all the glorious covenant promises given to Abraham. That's how you get the promises. You and I become inheritor of these glorious promises by becoming a part of the seed of Abraham. And how do you become a part of the seed of Abraham, according to Paul in Galatians 3? By trusting in whom? Jesus Christ. Now, I've said all that historically to get to the final thing, and I won't be long. This is very important. What are the implications of these facts? What are the implications for the church? For one thing. God's glorious promises to the Jews are all fulfilled in the Jew, Jesus Christ. Jesus was a Jew. Now, did you know that? Jesus was a Jew. You ever wonder why the Gospels make so clear that Jesus was born as a Jew? You ever read the beginning of the Gospel stories? We just came through the Advent 
season and Christmas. Such an emphasis on the Jewishness of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the gospel writers want us to know that Jesus is the true seed of Abraham. They want to assure that we understand that. Jesus is the covenant heir. Jesus is the inheritor of the Old Testament promises. Now, if we misunderstand this, we'll fall into some errors. Maybe we'll think, for example, that God has erased the Jews and the Jews no longer have a part in God's plan. That it's only about the Gentiles. But that's false. Paul makes clear in Romans 11, and you start in Romans 1, uh, verse 1 of Romans 11, that one day as the gospel overwhelms the earth and many Gentiles are converted, their salvation, I love this language, will provoke the Jews to jealousy. Basically, Paul says what happens one day is going to be this. The Jews are going to look around. There's going to be a great revival as many Gentiles are saved. And the Jews are going to say, hey, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. How come you Gentiles get what was first promised to us? And the Holy Spirit will sort of open their hearts and their eyes to the Messiah. And a great mass of Jews will turn to Jesus Christ. God's at work today among the Jews, bringing a number to the Messiah that most of them rejected 2,000 years ago. But one day, a multitude, more than any man could number, will come to the Messiah. Paul says there's a veil over their hearts today. Not all of them, but most of them. But one day, what does Paul say? God will just remove the veil. Oh, oh, you mean all these years, this one that we thought was sort of an imposter and maybe just a good man, but this really was the Messiah. One day, a multitude will see that and will be gloriously saved. By the way, there are different views of eschatology. Good people disagree, but in my view, this is why we can be optimistic. The greatest days for the church of Jesus Christ are ahead, not behind, according to Paul. I mean, the world looks bleak right now in many cases. Not so much in Africa, not so much in South America and Asia necessarily, but here in the West. The decadent, sinful, evil West. It might look bleak, but the blazing light of the gospel can dispel the inkiest darkness. And one day it will. And the Jews will be a big part of that, uh, that gospel success. However, there's another error that we can make if we don't understand the Abrahamic covenant. We might think that God has two separate covenant plans. One with Jesus and the Gentiles going on over here, and one without Jesus but with the Jews going on over here. Yet Paul makes it clear, and this is really vital, there is only one covenant plan and it's with Jesus Christ. Does everybody understand that? There is only one covenant plan, and that is with Jesus Christ. God's bringing both Jews and Gentiles and all other classes of people to Jesus Christ. God doesn't have two covenant plans. He's got one covenant plan, one covenant seed, one covenant people, all of them one in Jesus Christ. Didn't you love how he even put it there? All the distinction in Christ, man and woman and slave and free and Jew and Gentile, those things don't matter. What matters is that we're a part of the seed of Abraham. And the seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ. Which is to say, nobody gets to be right with God without faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only way. And there's no other way. Then there's a final lesson for us. If there's one people of God, the teachings of the Bible to God's people apply to all of God's people. Now, you might wonder why when Don and I preach, we'll pick up the Bible and we'll often preach from the Old Testament. Now, some preachers almost never preach from the Old Testament. 
Axel and I were talking about this before church last Sunday. A real problem with a lot, not all, of the German Lutheran ministers uh, before World War II is they just sort of set aside the Old Testament. A lot of American ministers do the same thing. Just sort of just set it aside. They think the Old Testament was written to the Jews and the New Testament is written to the Gentiles. But Paul taught just the opposite. He taught the Old Testament was written specifically for us Gentile Christians. By the way, he says that in 1 Corinthians 9, 9, and 10. You may want to write that down. He says it specifically. Was this written for their sakes or for your sakes? He says it was written not just for their sakes, but for your sakes. Now why is this? Why is this that on Sunday morning at our opening text, we can pick up Psalm 91 or Psalm 36 and read it and say this is the word of God to us, not just Oh, this was the word of God to David and the Jews. And here we are, 3,500, 3,000 years hence, looking backward, saying, Oh, isn't that nice that God did all these wonderful things? And maybe God also could be nice to us. That's not why we read the Psalms at the beginning. See this? This is a Christian book. This is a Christian book, all of it. This is a Christian book from Genesis to Revelation. Doesn't mean some specific parts like the sacrifices, certain aspects of the old covenant itself as an arrangement, set aside. But the truths of the word of God of Old and New Testament belong to the church, belong to the people of God. Because Jesus is the covenant seed of Abraham, all of the Old Testament promises are fulfilled in him. When we become part of Jesus by faith, hear this, we are the inheritors of the covenant promises. God is now our God. He's given us a glorious covenant seed, which is all of those who trust in Christ and the children that he gives us in covenant. And that's why we give our little children communion. And that's why our little children are baptized. You say, well, what about all those, the promise to of this glorious land? Oh, do you not understand? The Bible says that Jesus Christ has been given all the nations of the earth. Romans makes this clear. Oh, not just that narrow track, not just that narrow track over in Israel. But Jesus Christ is the inheritor of all the nations and all the earth. And as we trust in him, we are the inheritor of these glorious Abrahamic promises. When we read the Psalms, when we read God's glorious promises to Israel, we're reading promises to Jesus Christ. When we become part of him by faith, those promises become our promises. And this is why the whole Bible is for the whole people of God. <clears throat> we can read the Bible and love it and believe it and live by it. <coughs> Excuse me. And die by it because we are God's one covenant people. We have been washed by the blood. We've been saved by the resurrection of Jesus. We are a part of the Abrahamic covenant and all of those glorious promises of Abraham. Why? Jesus is the true seed of Abraham. We inherit all the promises by faith in Jesus Christ. There's one single people of God, and all of those who have placed faith in the Jewish Messiah are a part of that covenant seed. The church of Jesus Christ is, in fact, the true seed of Abraham, and Jesus is our Lord. Let us pray. I'm going to ask Michelle if he will pray for us that God will apply these glorious truths to our heart.